everybody. It's Stephanie Ruper. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Naked Humanity podcast. Today is episode number 35, and I have on Professor Ursula Goodenough, who's a biologist and a specialist on the ways in which religion and science can correlate. So today's episode is fantastic. I'm so happy to bring on Professor Ursula Goodenough, who is one of my lifelong, literally lifelong idols. Uh, A few quick notes. You may notice if you're tuning in, if you're listening, that the pod, that this recording, maybe the audio is a little bit off. If you're watching, you may have noticed that I do not have my uh, normal digs. I am currently in the process of moving and we had some technical difficulties, and so I am re-recording this introduction to our episode with Professor Goodenough. The episode itself will be in standard format, uh, just this intro is a little bit off, and also due to these technical difficulties, I lost episode number 35X, and it will not be recovered, so we will have to live without it. It was an episode about emergence. Now, emergence is a property of the universe that we talk about a lot in philosophy, and it basically describes the ways in which increasing levels of complexity emerge from uh, less complex, right? So, uh, for example, we often talk about how chemistry, the laws of chemistry are not, quote unquote, reducible to physics, but they are coherent with physics and arise out of physics, right? And you can say the same thing, for example, about an ecosystem, right? It's not necessarily a physical law that predators and prey have certain kinds of interactions, but it is a law that we find happening once you get to the level of complexity of ecosystems. Now, people relate to this in a somewhat spiritual fashion often because uh, the spiritual is often thought of as emerging from the emotional or the mental or what have you. Uh, And this is actually something that Professor Goodenough is uh, very skilled at explicating. So I would recommend Googling uh, Ursula Goodenough and emergence or just emergence itself, emergence in spirituality, emergence in religion, if you're interested in how people sort of take this idea of emergence to embed their spirituality in the natural world. And if you want, you can send me questions about it and maybe I'll do a future uh, podcast episode about it. So that's that for that episode. Today's episode with Professor Goodenough is just um, really remarkable. It has been such an honor, um, again, to speak with one of my uh, role models and somebody who has been immensely influential in what we call the field of religious naturalism. Now, the show, I have had a few religious naturalists, card-carrying religious naturalists on the show already. Um, Don Crosby is a brilliant philosopher, religious naturalist thinker. I had him on for episodes 22 and 23 um, about nihilism and the modern world and how religious naturalism could be a way to cope with or change your nihilistic feelings, that is your feelings of meaninglessness. I also had on Michael Hogue, who is a prominent uh, critic, or not critic, but um, commentator within uh, the religious naturalism space. Uh, And now I'm having on Ursula Goodenough and I will have on some more. In today's episode, we talk a lot about her experiences with biology, how she has gone to church and stopped going to church, and her book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, which really changed the game in terms of how we think about uh, nature and relating to it on a spiritual level. We have all these ideas that uh, spirituality has to look a particular way, but when you look 
into a scientific interpretation of nature, and especially in this brilliant way that uh, Professor Goodenough does, then you can sort of see how you can have, we can retain religious feelings, you can have spirituality, um, even without uh, very normal trappings of, of spirituality. So um, do enjoy, listen in and enjoy this episode. It's it's wonderful. And she's a wonderful, inspiring uh, figure and, and woman. Um, I'll read you a little bit about her. Um, Ursula Goodenough says her bio is one of the best known voices in religious naturalism. This is true. I can attest. She is author of the best-selling book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, which in examining cosmology, evolution, cell biology, and aspects of life celebrates the mister and wonder of being alive and suggests that religious naturalism can sense can serve as the basis for planetary ethics that draw from both science and religion. Professor Goodenough is a professor of biology at Washington University. She has discussed religious naturalism in essays, college classes, and parts of blogs, television series, and radio productions. She participated in conversations with the Dalai Lama, a rare honor, uh, sponsored by the Mind and Life Institute. Her work has been discussed in Religious Natural Naturalism Today by Jerome Stone and The Promise of Religious Naturalism by Michael Hogue, who I had on the podcast. Uh, and uh, these are both also fantastic books, and her book is fantastic. So to reiterate, please enjoy. It's a great episode. Thank you so much for your patience. I will uh, talk to you next week. Here is Professor Goodenough. Okay. Hi. Welcome, Ursula. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you very much. So I recently, uh, about 10 or 15 episodes ago, uh, I had on Mike Hogue, uh, who was a really delightful guest. And he told me that you were teaching a course uh, on religious naturalism recently that just that recently concluded, right? It did. Yes. Yeah. How, how was that? How did that go? The first week of April. It was wonderful. There was uh, lots of, you know, class was full. It was intensive. Uh, nine to five, five days. Um, yeah. And we, Mike and I did a lot. And then we had a bunch of people zooming into mm. their things and lots of, roundtable discussions among the seminarians and uh, general conversation. It was wonderful. Yeah, I, I have been told that you're, you're very proactive um, in, I mean, I know this also because I've read dozens of articles by you, uh, okay. but you're, I, 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 well, I have, um, I, I don't know if I, I think I told you this, that there is actually a chapter on you in my uh, dissertation. And so I've actually uh, oh, I read. Notice. Cool. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I was finishing editing the chapter today. Oh, okay. So please send it to me. I'd love to read it. <laughs> I, that makes me the most nervous in the world because of course, of all the people <laughs> who could read it and say, wow, this is totally inaccurate. Right. It's obviously you. Um, well, but why not make it accurate? <laughs> and my ideas about what's inaccurate may not be correct. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the chapter is, the chapter is basically on, um, I construct an idea of salvation. And so the chapter is basically on what I call the soteriological potential of, of science, um, in the sacred depths of nature, your book. But what um, does soteriology mean? <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, you, sp you spend so much time with scholars of religion. Uh, yeah. it means like saving, right? Saving. Uh, okay. That's salvation. What I was, but I want to be sure. Okay. Yeah. 
um, which is, which is delightful. Okay. So I'm, I'm totally, uh, getting, getting ahead of myself here. Um, I really, I think that you have a, uh, a unique, uh, voice and experience and all of these sorts of things. And so I would really, I'm very excited to share your views with, uh, with my audience. And so maybe we could just get started, um, with you telling us uh, a little bit about what the idea of religious naturalism means to you. Okay, so first of all, I try very hard not to use the ism, naturalism, although I did use it in my book. But since then, I have come to understand that people in general are kind of, I think correctly, um, leery of isms. Uh, it suggests dogma and um, inflexibility and uh, know-it-allness and the whole idea of what I'm now calling a religious naturalist orientation, where natu naturalist is an adjective, uh, is that it is an orientation. It is, therefore, ultimately um, works with an individual person may also come to be an orientation that a group develops and then agrees to share. Um, but that the idea that there is such a thing as religious naturalism has come to just not work for me at all. So I may go ahead and use it as we talk just because it's easier than the um, religious naturalist orientation. But um, I think that's a very important feature of it is that nature just is. Nature presents herself to us in all of her complexity and wonder. And then a religious naturalist responds to those understandings of nature religiously. And those responses can vary from person to person, depending on what traditional religions they may have been raised in, uh, their own temperament, what they're seeking in their religious life, um, all sorts of things. And I regard this uh, diversity of orientations to be thrilling rather than um, a mess, <laughs> um, because there is a, it's not like it's completely all over the place. What's grounding it is everybody's story and um, how nature works. And uh, so there's the one rule, if there, we can talk about a rule, is you don't get to cherry pick. You don't get to say, well, I don't like this about nature, so I'm going to pretend it's not there. <laughs> uh, um, so since there are rules, the diversity, I think, is exciting. Mm. Yeah, so there, I think your position, I really appreciate this. And I think you would understand the diversity uh, particularly well, because you choose, are you, are you're still attending church? Is that correct? Well, uh, there was a, there was a time. <laughs> well, yeah, let me, I mean, you mentioned that in your email, the, um, when I wrote the book, um, I was participating in a church. It was, uh, motivated initially um, because this was prior to any of the RN work that I'm doing um, 
uh, by the fact that I'm a singer and I walked into this church and discovered there was an excellent choir director who was uh, music that I love to sing. And so I joined the choir. Uh, But when you join the choir, uh, you listen to every sermon. (laughs) There you are. You go to every service. And uh, so I came to understand what was going on there. What happened in that particular case was that particular music director moved to another city. Um, his replacement chose music that I was less interested in, so I stopped going. So, And recently I've moved from St. Louis to Martha's Vineyard, uh, where I uh, retired um, two years ago, and I have joined the UU Church, where I also sing in the choir. But the UU is obviously because it doesn't really have any grounding tenets or anything it's more <clears throat> conducive to our end so I've given some sermons and stuff like that that's uh that's really interesting I had no idea I uh I used to before I moved in uh moved to England attend UU services all the time I think it's a I think it's a fantastic community and I find it not altogether surprising that you have uh, ended up there um, for the people listening. The UU community is uh, tends to be a more naturalistic um, place, or one that appreciates diversity, but is sort of um, people collect around uh, basic guiding principles having to do with a religious search for meaning. So, I actually that that's very interesting to me. Did you find that there was dissonance uh, in in your experience with nature? your uh, orientation to nature and the participating in a Christian liturgy or was that it's because you at least in the book presented it as something that was pretty seamless. Oh, well, I mean, the traditional religions Mm -hmm. are part of nature. (laughs) That is a good way to put it. It's part of nature. Uh, um, And so considering them and, um, mining them for their wisdom as well as noticing aspects of um, their understandings that one that don't resonate uh, and therefore you don't um, pull them into your own orientation, um, I think is, is a wonderful challenge. And when I was writing Sacred Depths, I very much was looking not only, of course, to the Christian writings and um, understandings, but also those of other faith traditions and indigenous traditions and so on, and as well as poetry and art and everything. So all of the stuff that we humans have come up with in our cultures are part of nature. That's a beautiful way to look at it. I'm going to have to update the chapter in my dissertation, um, <laughs> which, is, which is good. It's for the better. Um, okay, so something that I found particularly interesting uh, was your elaboration of this idea that uh, science can be disenchanting or cause despair or anxiety, um, at least on first encounter. And then when you delve into it or you interpret it, and especially the way that you do um, in your book and in your works, then it can become a way to know nature in a way that is actually spiritually enlivening. Um, but I, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about perhaps your pers- experience or perspective on the sort of negative encounter that we can have with science, because I think a lot of people do feel resistance to science uh, for this reason. Okay, so you used science in two different ways in what you just said. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is science as a practice, and the other is what science learns as a consequence of its practice. Right. And 
that I won't <laughs> use the narrative of confusion, but I'll say that that misunderstanding or that um, ambiguity has caused, I think, a lot of confusion uh, generally in our times. Um, so science is a practice. It's a way of asking questions. It's the usual thing that everybody sort of gets one way or the other during school, the hypothesis and uh, testing the hypothesis and reproducibility and all these boring things. But it's, it's not limited to people with degrees in science. So if you go out and try to start your car and it doesn't start, you develop a hypothesis. Oh, maybe I'm out of gas. And so then there's a test of that hypothesis. You look at your gas gauge and see, uh, oh, maybe my battery is burned out. So you turn on the lights and see if the lights go on. So, I mean, we do science all the time. Kids do science all the time. You watch them and they're figure, trying to figure something out and they test it. Um, Scientists who get paid to do this um, can be asking questions of um, of stars, of the earth, of people, social scientists, uh, cultural uh, historians and cultural analysts. They're all doing science. They're all asking questions and um, testing them and putting them out there. And then people agree or disagree and find out other things. The understanding that comes from that inquiry depends on how good your data is. So sometimes when you get a new equipment or you discover that your gas gauge is busted and that's <laughs> it, you really are out of gas, but using your gas gauge wasn't a good idea. You should have opened up the uh, tank in your uh, car and noticed that it was empty. Um, so th there's lots of ways that scientific understandings deepen and sometimes they're wrong, um, but they're usually wrong either because the data is bad for one reason or another. Um, so then the second piece is what science has come up with. And so the science that we have today has come up with a very deep understanding of the natural world, a more uh, tentative understanding of the human, actually. Uh, I think we understand more about the natural world than we do about human beings at this point. Um, but um, all of these understandings are um, what I would call nature, um, as I said earlier, uh, including human beings and their cultures. And so those understandings um, can deepen and will deepen, but there's lots of stuff that we know about the natural world that I feel I could predict my right arm are not going to go away. I mean, DNA is not going to be found to have no relevance to how life works. <laughs> we, we're stuck with DNA. It's part of the story. Um, stars are not going to go away as the generators of the heavy elements uh, in the universe. That's where they're made. And so um, the religious naturalist then takes these understandings and works with them religiously. And some of the understandings then can... Uh, be ones that a particular religious naturalist doesn't feel comfortable with. 
uh, some people, as, and I have in reflection to my first chapter in Sacred Depths, get freaked out about all of how big the universe is and how the whole thing seems to be pointless and how we're this tiny little speck and all of that and would prefer understandings to put human in the center of everything. Um, so there are, there, those are challenges. <laughs> um, but um, I don't think those are challenges that we could say have to do with science. I think they are challenges that have to do what science has let us know about. Hmm. Right. So, but so science, if, if we use it as a term for what, you know, what we have been able what to, we found, know, yeah, right, right, what we have, what we have found, what we can't, yeah, which, which I think is, is, is confusing, but we can go ahead and do it if you want to. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. It's the reason that I often do so is because, uh, I think in our contemporary culture, that is the thing about the act or the phenomena or the, you know, um, monolith of science that, that people, uh, feel resistant to, or that they will, uh, pit against religion. Right. Um, or it's one of the ways in which they'll pit it against religion. And so we end up with these like two very bifurcated, supposedly bifurcated ways of looking at things. Well, of course they don't have to be, but we end up with that distinction, you know, I think in, in large part, because, you know, it comes from the methods, which you yeah, referenced, it's, of it's, course. It's just really unfortunate. That, but anyway, there we are. So, okay, at least you and I understand each other, and maybe some of your listeners will. Yes, uh, I, I think they will. It, will, it, be helped, will be helped by this, this distinction. Because, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, religion isn't uh, a way of investigation. I mean, religion formally is what you come up with at the end of the day in terms of what your belief system is. And uh, you can... Um, come up with that using all sorts of um, modes of inquiry. You can read other, you can read religious texts, you can look at nature, you can look into your own experiences, uh, you can talk to your friends, uh, lots of ways to come up with what you would call your religion. I'm, uh, I'm putting more thought into what you said, into the urgency with which you you think these two category categories of you know types of science should be separated and i'm starting to think you're very right and we need new language you know we could just say nature right but people that's, I, I that's what i try to do <laughs> i think i think people would uh that would it wouldn't be immediate to people if you said nature that you meant a scientific understanding of nature because we do have this antiquated kind of dichotomy about a scientific understanding of nature and i don't know what the other <laughs> alternative well, i mean it, yeah i mean so one could say i like to walk in the woods because i'm part of nature and in those situations you have two options you can just think about how beautiful it is and how happy you are to be there and stuff like that or you can go into gee those trees are photosynthesizing and gee those trees have genes that are like my genes and uh gee those what's the ad adaptive advantage of that flower being that shape. So you can ask scientific questions of nature if that's what floats your boat. Um, I do that all the time when I'm out in nature because that's, I like what to floats your boat, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not necessary to enjoy nature to have those questions. And very often I will go out in nature and don't, 
everything that I see is so gorgeous that I'm not, I don't go there. Um, so it's okay. also <laughs> our context and our, our habitat, and we can just enjoy being in it as a fellow creature. Yeah, so in this understanding of nature that you have gleaned from scientific method. <laughs> <laughs> scientific inquiry. Scientific inquiry. Okay, so um, something that I think is, is really important and which I think you have done in a pretty unique and important way is to sort of look at the kinds of functions that religion tends to perform for us or the kinds of answers that it tends to provide, right? Uh, and to see if we can find alternatives in nature that are also spiritually or emotionally satisfying or however, however we want to think of it. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm wondering if you would be willing to talk about maybe um, a couple of facts or things you know about the world and how they are, in a sense, uh, do provide some kind of meaning, uh, something like uh, emergence or the connectivity of life that we know through studies of biodiversity. Um, I, I, I can pick one if you want. I, I know them all by heart. <laughs> um well yeah go ahead and pick one okay Okay, let's uh let's start with the concept of emergence because i think you can apply that to physics and chemistry and life and consciousness right it's um it's a very powerful concept Some people apply it to physics but i I think that's that's pushing it um (laughs) (laughs) uh i mean physics just you know is running along using its rules and um and it's not like emergence breaks any rules. It's just that it's um, it describes events that generate something else than what was there before it occurred. So the basic idea is that the the T-shirt slogan is uh, something else from nothing but. And so the nothing but um, and how you get the something else from nothing but is that the nothing buts in a given context form relationships with one another. And these relationships usually at the end of the day take the form of molecular shapes, molecular, um, yeah, molecular shapes. So in Deaconese that Terry Deacon would say this is morphodynamics, but we don't need to go to all of that stuff. It's just that, uh, Proteins form shapes that allow them to catalyze a chemical reaction, and those particular shapes um, were not there um, in the individual atoms or amino acids or whatever of the protein. They form as a consequence of the protein's fold. But once they have formed, then what emerges is the capacity to catalyze and the capacity for catalyze is catalyzing is something else from all the other things that we can say about the protein, all of which are true. But the capacity to catalyze is something that an organism would use um, to um, make its way in the world. And so this emergence, the, the ability of organisms to generate shapes that generate <clears throat> emergent properties and functions is sort of the big, the big new deal uh, that living organisms have come up with. And what living organisms have come up with writ large is 
that they have aims, they have a purpose. So some people get disturbed by the idea that the the universe doesn't have a purpose um, and um, whether it does or not, I don't care um, because I don't know and I'm not sure anybody else would know unless we get data to that effect. But what is perfectly clear is that this planet is just shimmering with purpose. Every single critter on the planet has a very, very, very deep aim, which is to keep itself alive, keep itself going, uh, find resources, uh, protect itself from predators and so on. And so there's just gazillions of these wonderful creatures here and for hundreds of millions of years, billions of years, um, purposefully um, doing their thing. And I think that that's Going back to the original uh, question that you wanted to do in this segment, uh, that's a really important religious concept to realize that life on Earth is certainly unique in terms of all other places in the universe that we know about. This is not to say that someday there won't be life discovered somewhere else, because, but it if it is discovered somewhere else, be it via <clears throat> some optical device that we figure out how to use and go there or something, that life will be so far from us, so distant that the idea that we'll ever actually hang out together is pretty remote. So for me, the idea that the earth is the unique and only home of purpose in the universe just blows it up to be incredibly important that we take care of the place. Mm. Yeah, I personally find it was it was so astonishing to me how counterintuitive that idea was coming from the presumption that purpose had to come from a god for me. Uh but I now do I now do find the the purposefulness, you know, of life and uh also the things that go along with purpose like uh, evaluation, value, um, and aesthetics even, uh, to, to be, it's, it's, it's quite, uh, it's quite compelling and it's radically, I think, underestimated, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in our, in our nihilistic, uh, in our nihilistic world. Uh, okay. So that's emergence. What about, can we talk about, uh, death and the sort of the, impacts that learning about multicellularity may have <laughs> one may uh one may one might learn uh about okay. how to so, approach death so we, we talked about aims and about how each creature tries to keep itself together um when a creature the what to use a word that messes with some people's minds, but all living beings are basically trying to counter entropy, entropy, trying to counter the tendency of anything in the universe to fall apart and not be ordered. And so they're trying to keep it ordered. They're trying to keep their metabolism going. They're trying to keep their motility going. They're trying to keep their life going. Um, And when that effort eventually falls apart, they die. And that for a single celled organism, that could happen just by not having enough to eat or having the wrong 
pH in their environment are too hot or whatever, or being killed or eaten by some other organism. Uh, so there are lots of ways for single-celled organisms to die. Um, but if they don't die, what they instead do is they divide two into two daughter organisms, and each of those daughter organisms then sets out to uh, keep itself going. And so there is no obligate death in the structure of their life cycles, um, even though death can and does happen routinely. It doesn't have to happen. And what's different about that and the multicellular organism is that the multicellular organism having lots of different kinds of cells um, where this has arisen and it's risen, multicellularity has arisen independently in land plants and animals. So those are two that we know about. So we can just use those. Those two uh, kinds of multicellularity, multicellular organisms, their embryology is really different. It clearly evolved independently. It wasn't, um, one didn't give rise to the other. Uh, but in both cases, both plants and animals, their major mode of propagation is to make egg and sperm, um, egg and pollen. And um, that's how the next generation arises is via these specialized organs and cell types. And this means that the multicellular organism can then, during embryology, um, generate additional kinds of cells that are important for the main task of being an organism, which is to keep itself going. So animals develop muscles so they can move, plants develop flowers. Uh, well, that's a bad example because that's part of sex, but uh, plants uh, develop leaves so they can do photosynthesis and bark so they can grow tall. And um, all of those adaptations um, are what we call somatic, and they are all inherently destined to die. They have a fixed lifetime uh, in some cases, in some insects, uh, the soma only lasts for a day, uh, although then there are lots of other instars and caterpillars and so on. But um, the basic idea is that the whole somatic program has uh, the doom of death written on it because it's not necessary from an evolutionary standpoint. What's necessary is to keep the lineage going. If it doesn't keep going, it goes extinct. And that job has been handed over to the germline. So the place you're wanting me to go, I think, is that for us humans, um, this has very important implications, obviously, because we are perhaps the only ones who understand that death is our fate. Um, all other animals and plants do everything they can to avoid death, but the fact that it's going to happen anyway isn't part of their understanding of things. Uh, but it is our understanding of things from quite an early age, and it generates a lot of fear and anxiety and sorrow and everything. So there are two ways to look at that. One is to think about death as it relates to our emotional um, sorrow, anguish, when loved ones die, be they 
our relatives, our friends, our animals. Um, we are and completely should be uh, distraught that they're no longer with us, they being part of our being and lifeline. But our own death, um, fearing it, is one possibility. What I've come to think, in fact, I came to think of this, I came to understand this when I was in college, is, is to my mind, it's going to be like before I was born. And before I was born, I'm not afraid of that. Uh, <laughs> it was a time when, uh, and so I that took away a lot of the fear of what it would be like to be dead. Um, but the other piece here is that in us, the, these other adaptations that multicellularity provides, including motility and so on, it also includes perception. It also includes brains. It also includes the way we think, the way we feel, the way we love. And, so if we weren't multicellularity, if, if we weren't multicellular, we wouldn't have brains. And so there can be a hosanna for our multicellularity-ness because it allows us to have the lives and experience that we're privileged to have. Yep, that was where I wanted you to go. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. We're good. And sacred depths. <laughs> yeah, so... I just think it's important because I can tell people all day long, hey, look, actually, a scientific understanding of nature does not have to be emotionally empty, mm -hmm. right? But it, it, having concrete examples, I think, is is very important. You know, it gives people to, something to something to hook themselves to. Um, another uh, piece of religions that I would like to talk about is uh, the mythic aspect, right? And mm -hmm. uh, we are we are organisms that like to tell stories and that like to make sense of things with stories. And you have uh, identified and been one of the main proponents of something that we are sort of calling the evolutionary epic. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can tell us about uh, what that means to you or um, how the evolutionary epic is uh, sort of bridging that gap between a scientific understanding of nature and what we're longing for is storytellers. Okay. Well, as we have come to understand nature via scientific inquiry, <laughs> you're getting good at this. Um, <laughs> um, what we've discovered is that it's not the case that nature was created in six days or uh, um, in Genesis 2. It's there before the humans even show up or uh, however you want to read Genesis 2. But um, but that it's been going on for at least 13 billion years. And of course, we'd have absolutely no way of grasping what the 13 billion years is. We have no way of grasping what a billion years is. I, I don't think I even understand what 100,000 years is. But anyway, a long time. And during that time, a lot of things have been happening. And so for a minimalist version of a story is that it tells something in a sequence that there's a beginning and a middle and uh, an end or a current time of it. And um, so as we've come to understand 
the natural world, we also understand that it has a history, including the evolutionary history of all of its creatures, and that this has a time frame. And so to say that one is embedded in the natural world or that one is embedded in this story, which I prefer to call everybody's story because it's everybody's story, um, is to sort of say the same thing. It's just making an emphasis, emphasizing the time aspect of the natural world as opposed to some other things one might think about. And this time aspect then has given us the understanding, which is disquieting to some people, that we just showed up um, maybe 200,000 years ago for Homo sapiens, if you really push some of the fossil evidence, uh, and that it's all been going on without us. We're um, uh, new kids on the block, and that because presumably of our minds and our ability to have language and culture, we've kind of taken the place over and uh, made a mess of it and need to fix it, fix our behavior. Um, but it still is important, I think, to put that in the context of our late arrival. And another piece of that story, which you alluded to a few minutes ago, is that not only did we just show up, but we just showed up because we are totally inexorably interrelated with all the other creatures that came before us. So we have the same kinds of genes. We make do everything the same kind of way. We are not special or different in any way, except that we happen to have these brains that can do fancy things. And that we're also, we've discovered totally dependent on the rest of the natural world. We can't live without the rest of the natural world, um, even though some people feel that that's the case. They're, they're absolutely wrong about that. And so this story has uh, morals. <laughs> and most stories we think about do have morals. There's, there's a reason for telling the story. Maybe you just want to tell a joke, or maybe you want to make a point, or maybe you want to entertain. But a story usually has some take-homes, and the take-homes to everybody's story include very strong moral injunctions. Mm. I am glad you ended there because that is uh, precisely what I wanted to ask about was uh, you have, you've been calling this everybody's uh, story, and I think um, it's very important. It's obviously very challenging to try to unite an entire planet full of billions of people around uh, an idea and specifically one that is based on a scientific understanding of reality. Um, <laughs> um, but it, but it is, but it is important. And you have said that you think it's uh, important for people to have like some sort of uh, religious emotion or some sort of uh, regard um, for the world in order to be ethically motivated. And so there's a sense in which something like the evolutionary epic is uh, necessary if we want to have some sort of sustainable, like a really sustaining um, care for e each other in the world. I couldn't agree with you more. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, great. yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and so um, this, uh, this idea of the, of the evolutionary epic, how do you, uh, do you, 
you've spent some time uh, talking about it and, and promoting it. And do you find that uh, people take to it like pretty easily? Right. I'm. It, it depends completely. I mean, it's it's everything from yeah, sure to no way, uh, right. right? And um, one thing that we haven't explicitly said, but which I think is very important to include, is that by adopting everybody's story, this doesn't mean that one's life doesn't have other stories, right? Mm. So if you only have one story, which happens to be true for me, that's one could say that's the easiest path because there's no conflict between stories. Um, if you say, okay, evolution, everybody's story, um, I believe it. Uh, it's true, but I'm also a Christian. I also believe in the stories that come to me through biblical texts. Um, that's harder to do. You have to work at that. You have to figure out where everybody's story leaves off for you and where the Christian story begins. So it's, um, it's more of a challenge than just having one story. And of course, the final thing is that it's not a challenge. If you just say, I am a Christian and I had the Christian story and I don't believe in any of this other stuff. Um, I think the earth was created in six days, etc. Um, then you don't have a conflict either. So the people who are trying to do both are the ones who have um, the most work to do, although one could say that they also have a very rich life, this ability to carry several, two stories or several stories um, makes them arguably a richer and deeper person. I would, I would tend to agree with you that I think there is a, a very rich sophistication that can come from this, but it's also, I think, very either emotionally and or intellectually demanding, as you said, like there are definitely challenges inherent to that. And uh, I think that involves uh, treating, uh, taking a step back from your attachments to your religious beliefs being metaphysically true. And you have to almost turn them into something that is symbolic or that can, you know, teach us moral lessons in Absolutely. some way. Right. But, but it can't be something that is a metaphysically true precisely because it does conflict with the scientific understanding of nature. Um, yep. So, you know, we haul out the good old trusty wild card metaphor that, <laughs> okay. that, that the stories that come to us from our traditions that were written and thought of and uh, experienced as revelation um, are that preceded the our current understandings of how the natural world works are not devoid of meaning, are not devoid of interest, or not uh, are often tell us um, many things. Uh, that, I mean the idea that we should love one another and be kind to the planet is hardly something that uh, is absent from the text of most of the traditions and obviously Native American ones in particular or other indigenous ones, that kind of thing is front and center. Um, but in the traditions, I think without almost exception, um, and even the Native American ones that understand that humans came recently and that are just showed up and have have to integrate themselves with the rest 
of their ecosystem, that even those stories, uh, by definition, the human is center to the story. I mean, the human is telling the story. It's it's the story of the human as understood by the storyteller. And um, even the animals in indigenous traditions, they talk, <laughs> they have language, uh, you know, they're doing um, uh, things that we do. So we are putting our way of being in the world onto the rest of the world. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think it's important to recognize that that's what's happening and that that's what we're doing. Mm. Um, I think that that's, that's not very, call that, not call that metaphysics. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I think that's very helpful. And the, the metaphors are not groundless then because there are yeah. some kind of there is an analog in the, in the natural world. And this is where the kinds of ideas that uh, I prompted you to explain earlier uh, about emergence and about death and Uh consciousness. And there's so much, right. This is where those things can sort of um, come in and serve as the baseline for our uh, crafting of the ways we make sense of things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So there's there's only one rule. (laughs) You don't get to change nature. (laughs) Yeah, no, but that's true, right? And I think that actually uh, brings us at a, a good point to start winding down on, which is uh, if there is no changing nature, uh, a theme that has to be really prominent is acceptance, right? If you have a religious story, you might like tweak it or you might be able to find somebody else who tells it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with, with a scientific understanding of nature, um, it kind of is what it is unless you get new data. Right. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. so you have, I think, um, two things, uh, acceptance on one hand and uh, an appreciation for mystery on the other that sort of fill in the rest of the gaps that might be left uh, by this understanding. So I prefer the word asset to acceptance. Because okay. acceptance can kind of mean, oh, well, all right, I guess I have no choice. Uh, whereas <laughs> assent is a... A okay. positive attitude um, that says, okay, um, who am I to say that nature should be different? Who am I to say that there shouldn't be a volcano? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's not just that I accept that there are volcanoes. I give assent to volcanoes because they're, in fact, um, arise because we have plate tectonics and the plates are shifting and uh, hot stuff from the inside of the earth spews out. And that, that's what it is. And nature isn't evil because nature generates volcanoes, uh, which is, I mean, there are all sorts of ways you can go with that. Right. And that's, I think, very... Uh, that's a very beautiful distinction there between the words of accept and assent. Uh, and then uh, you talk a lot also about the um, the idea of mystery, right? Mm-hmm. Where where we actually run up against not knowing, you know, where science runs up, where the act of science runs up against not knowing. Then we can sort of, instead of being terrified of the uncertainty and running away from it, which I think is a very you know, natural and understandable response, you can sort of turn towards it and appreciate it as, uh, as something that's wondrous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it'd be very boring to live in a situation where there was no mystery. Um, mm. And 
as I say in my book and elsewhere, uh, the, the, the big one is why is there anything at all rather than nothing, the famous <laughs> philosopher's trope. Um, but we don't know that. Um, it could be that there was nothing um, and instead there's something and we don't know why. And uh, for me, for the believer would like to say it's because God did it. And then of course you get to the, well, why is there God and all of that stuff, um, which I find very boring. So um, for me, I'm just really happy to live in a place where there is mystery and where there are things that we don't know the answers to. And at the same time, you know, that doesn't mean that you find God in the gaps, or, or at least I think that's a an unfortunate move. Um, I think that the problem with that is that God keeps getting smaller and smaller as gaps keep getting filled and you no longer need God to explain X or Y. And pretty soon God becomes very deistic and kind of, you know, got the thing started and then uh, stepped back and wasn't interested, which isn't why people are looking for a God at all. The deistic God is, is, is useless. So uh, to my mind, you might as well just not have one at all. And um, so having mystery is, uh, means not knowing answers, but uh, living in what you do know is what I think is much richer. Mm. Yeah. There's a, there's almost, there's a sense in which there are, there were things that we think would be really good for us, but maybe they wouldn't, right? <laughs> like, what, what would you say? Such as uh, having all the answers, right? Or oh, oh, oh yeah, okay. Does such as <laughs> um, like Don Crosby is often often talks about, um, and he is on the podcast twice. Uh, he he talks about how the idea of heaven is uh, probably something that we wouldn't altogether like right if right, it'd be boring right because it's boring <laughs> yeah um and and we need to it's very helpful if we know this because then we can actually um embrace things that are honest um, mm -hmm. if they scare us yep yep um okay so we're actually we're coming up on an hour i'm wondering if you oh, have okay. I, I know well, the time goes by so quick. Oh. So yeah, there is there is a plug. <laughs> I uh, love plugs. And, and I, I I don't like doing this, but I'm making myself do it. And that is that if any of your listeners are interested in any of this, um, it turns out that um, about five years ago, a bunch of us put up a website and set up a nonprofit organization. It's called the Religious Naturalist Association. And if you just put those three words into Google, you will get the URL, which is the same thing with hyphens in the middle of it, and .org. And um, we there put up a lot of the ideas that I'm talking about, and there is an option to become a member for free for anybody who feels like they'd like to join in. And the idea, which presumably should be obvious for people who've listened to this whole podcast is not that there is a version of this orientation that we're promoting at all. It's rather to have a home so that people know that there are others like them out there and um, can get ideas from and we have, uh, listservs and all of the usual bells and whistles. What's fun is that although we haven't advertised, we don't have 
any money. Um, we there are already over 500 members uh, from 20 different countries, including lots from England, and um, the uh, the people who when they join, when they offer to give a reason why they're joining, which we offer them as an option, uh, often say, oh, I'm so excited in my town. There's nobody who thinks like me and I didn't think anybody did. And now I know I'm part of a community and that feels really cool to me. So there it is, my plug. evangelism. I don't know whether you've had a chance to go to the site. And a lot of the people who are supporting the site are people that you've had on your podcast, like Michael Hogue and Don Crosby, they're all advisors mm-hmm. to this and, and all supporting it. Yeah, the um, I've been I've been familiar with it for ages. I actually I don't think I'm officially a member. I, I'm a member of IRIS, you know, <laughs> I, I went to the you know the Iris, the Institute for. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. Well, that's really different. Yes. It's it's a very different world. Yes, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, no, this association is full of um, really brilliant people and great resources. Even just going to the website uh, and learning about all of the books, you know, yeah. that have been written yeah. by the advisory board and everything. Like it's, it's really extraordinary and it's a phenomenal resource. So I will actually, um, I'll provide, I'll talk about the organization and association and put links, um, on social media and, and all that sort of thing. That would be, um, that'd be terrific. And I hope you join yourself if you haven't done so. <laughs> oh, yeah. In like two minutes, <laughs> like right now. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's important. We're just trying to yeah, it's it's just stuff here. I don't know whether we'll ever do anything, but uh, it's just the existence is for me very very healing. Um, when I'm feeling frustrated, I say, "Oh, wait a minute, there are all these other people out there." <laughs> Good. And who knows what we did? All right. Well, it's been great to talk to you, and have a great rest of the week. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you so, so much. As I have said a million times, I'm, I'm really quite honored uh, to meet you and I will be spending um, a lot of time in the coming years trying to promote your stuff. So thank okay. you. And send me your chapter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> bye. I'm going to press delete. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Ursula. Bye. Okay, bye. <laughs>